I'm looking for things that really grab attention or a video that's really cool that helps to explain a concept. But this thing didn't exist 10 years ago. I just kind of stumbled into it and I'm glad I did because it's a lot of fun. Hey now, Mountain Crew. Welcome back to the Mountain Podcast, providing insider intel on how ski areas happen. Created by and for ski area employees in the Northwest. I'm Jordan Elliott, and you're on the mountain. episode, there's a really great new training program for ski lift technicians. The first of its kind, really. It was developed through a partnership between the Pacific Northwest Ski Areas Association and the Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy at Oregon State University. This training program is quickly becoming the go-to opportunity for all ski areas in the Northwest, and because it's online, It can be accessed by anyone, anywhere, really. You don't have to be in the Northwest. But make no mistake, drawing from the content in the National Ski Areas Association's Lift Maintenance Training Resource Guide, the Northwest Ski Areas built this training platform for themselves. They did it through this partnership with Oregon State University, which came with the help and reliance on our guest today. But before we get into that, I do want to talk about training in general, just for a moment. I want to just briefly talk about learning styles and some ways that the humans learn. I don't have cited information sources here beyond going back and looking at old PowerPoints I either made or was gifted or PDFs and handouts collected over the years. I'm no stranger to having been the trainer of the trainers on various workforce-related subjects. We learn in a few key ways. If you really want to geek out on some of the things you're about to hear, I recommend checking out the Society for Human Resources and what they say about learning styles. Some of us can be linguistic learners. These people are heavy on the verbal and language side. We enjoy traditional techniques, reading, writing, vocabulary, bookwork, storytelling, and speech. There are those who are logical learners. These folks enjoy measuring things, analogies, open-ended questions, figuring things out in a let-me-figure-it-out kind of way. A good exercise for this type of learner If you wanted them to know how many linear feet it takes any given chairlift to stop after the stop button is hit, as an example, you might have them stand next to the lift, hit the stop button, and give them a measuring tape. Some people don't need the tape, though. 
They are spatial learners. Spatial learners can visualize things. They enjoy pictures, graphs, videos, artistic renditions of the subject matter. You might look at this person as they are deep in study mode and they seem to be kind of staring off into the unknown universe. It's not a blank stare. All gears are turning as they contemplate. If they could actuate a hydraulic pump switch with their mind by staring at it long enough, they would. Next up, kinesthetic learners. It's all about moving your body. A kinesthetic learner can quickly learn gross motor activities, a very hands-on group of people. They might enjoy role-playing, or maybe if you're trying to teach how to tighten a nut onto a bolt, while you might tell the aforementioned linguistic learner, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey, you might do better to just give the kinesthetic learner the wrench. And there are two types left that I want to talk about, and they have to do with the learner's relationship with people. Interpersonal and intrapersonal. An interpersonal learner is a people person. They're outgoing, they're sociable, they like those group projects, team building activities. An intrapersonal learner might be a little more introspective. They learn best on their own. Give them a study guide, give them a worksheet, something like that. Don't distract them with other humans, not when they're deep in learning mode at least. And you might have thought to yourself just now that you yourself don't fit only in to one of these learning style gearboxes we just built. You thought, I'm an intrapersonal learner who learns in a spatial way. Or I'm a kinesthetic learner who could use someone to talk me through things as I'm physically doing them. And you would be right. We don't have to fit into just one of these learning styles. Sure, we might have a dominant style, but that doesn't mean other styles don't apply. Humans are complex creatures. You are a human. Therefore, you are complex. And in a nutshell, that whole idea is one of the reasons I like this new lift technician training program so much. It has something for everyone. We have all these content-based training modules that need to be completed by looking at a screen but we also have the on-mountain components that incorporate your supervisor's oversight and experience to check the knowledge gained through the modules and apply it to the real on-mountain setting. It's so great. And it is so far beyond a PowerPoint presentation. All right. While I could take a page out of the Led Zeppelin songbook and just ramble on here, I think it's going to have to be it from me. It's time to hear from our guest who you heard a little from last time as the whole crew from OSU went in-depth about this training program. The instructional designer at the Center for the Outdoor Recreation Economy at OSU Cascades. We had a call a couple of weeks back and talked not only about this program and just what is instructional design, but also, maybe even more so, about his life which has taken him to some pretty cool places and experiences. So let's do it. Mountain Crew, I'd like you to meet a guy behind the curtain of your new lift technician training program. 
Daniel Powers. Hi, Danny. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Thanks for joining me today. Let's tell the people who you are, uh, what you do, what's your job, where you live. Start there. Uh, my name is Danny Powers. I, I work for Oregon State University. I am what's called an instructional designer. Basically, I turn um, training or education or classroom classes into online experiences in ways that make sense. So you, you can't just, you know, take a syllabus or take a word word document and slap it online and call that a class. You've got to uh, put a lot of thought and a lot of media behind it because people expect, you know, audio and video these days. So that's what I that's what I do uh, as my day job. I uh, create a bunch of media to help people learn new things. And most recently, I've been doing that as part of the Outdoor uh, Recreation Economy Initiative. Now it's the Center for Outdoor Recreation Economy. And we cater to the outdoor sector. PNSAA, the Pacific Northwest Ski Area Association, is one of the uh, organizations we partner with. But we do a lot of work around Oregon with um, National Park Service and the Forest Service. Um, Anything that has to do with uh, the outdoor sector we're, we're creating training and we're deploying that training for, yeah, that's my job. But myself, I live in, uh, what is right now, sunny Vashon, Washington. It's a, it's an Island in the middle of Puget sound and, uh, you can only get here by ferry, but it's worth it. So (laughs) I live here with my wife and my nine-year-old and, uh, or eight-year-old, almost nine-year-old. And I, I sit here and think of ways to make, um, training and education as, uh, media rich and as, as cool as possible. Yeah. I like it. Uh, Vashon. I love Vashon. I love when I meet people from Vashon and maybe this isn't representative of everybody from, from there, but they refer to it as our island, my island, like the dude from Braveheart a lot. I hear people talk about it. Oh, back, back on our island. Yeah. Uh, I love it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was actually off island yesterday. We call it um, over town or just off island. Uh, there are people that just don't leave, never leave the island. Uh, and they call it the rock. But I was off island and um, stuck in traffic in Tacoma and thinking to myself, man, I can't wait to get back to my island. Uh, <laughs> <That's> <laughs> um, awesome. and, and I say that knowing, you know, the the uh, native inhabitants of our island, of course, were on their ancestral land. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a there's a real community on the island um, uh, that that you, you'll hear about if you ever meet somebody from Vashon, um, they'll they'll talk about what a magic place it is. And we actually lived in California uh, and, and came up here in 2017, just um, happened upon the island. We had some travel credits and we we just stumbled on this island. And uh, after one weekend here, went back to California, sold our house, sold everything we owned, saved up every penny and and moved here about a year and a half ago. So something just drew us here uh, and and not a moment too soon. We got here right when the pandemic hit and we've got some acres to stretch out on and we're kind of secluded on the island, of course. So it's a great place. It's a cool place to be. So cool. I wasn't. So when I met you, you were still in California and I I knew you had like a Washington connection, but I wasn't really sure that it was that long ago now that you moved up there. So super great uh, to have you in the neighborhood. So let, let's back up a little bit and just talk about 
how we met, and it's great to hear. It's basically official now. Then that the uh, it's the Center for Outdoor Recreation Economy at yeah. at OSU now, uh, which is like the next the, the little seed that was planted in the Outdoor Recreation Economy Initiative is growing and is becoming a thing now. And that's how I met you. And I have the flyer open in front of me all the way back from May 2019 <laughs> when I was invited to join us for a two-day retreat to discuss workforce development needs across the outdoor recreation industry and ways for OSU and higher education to provide accessible, lifelong training and support that accelerates innovation and progress for our people, organizations, and economy. Yeah, uh, that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. <laughs> all on a flyer. That all fit on a flyer. Uh, but that's where I met you, except I don't really remember a meeting interacting with you much that day. You're like the tech support dude in the back. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't actually even work for um, what is the center now. Um, I worked for a, a different part of the university and I was kind of on loan to to kind of take everything in. Lee, uh, who is uh, the director of the center, my boss, uh, asked me to attend. And just kind of observe and kind of take it all in and get some ideas about, you know, the directions that 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 it could go. And back then, you're right. It was just an idea. It was the seed. And he got a bunch of people together and talked about um, challenges in the outdoor rec economy. But yeah, I, I um, the only reason I remember you there is because I was taking a bunch of pictures and I had to filter through a bunch of pictures and label them. And I'm like, oh, that's Jordan. OK, <laughs> um, but yeah, we we actually first interacted i think at bachelor um a few months later when i flew down for or flew up i should say um to to shoot some some preliminary video for what is now the ski lift technician training yeah exactly september september of that year yeah yeah uh before that it was an email phone call show after that osu thing um and it really it was really amazing how this kind of sparked at that workshop because those were really big ideas it was a little overwhelming really um i was honored to be invited there as part of you know outdoor recreation economy from the country you guys brought in people from all over the country to really think about think about this in different ways uh than it has been and it was a little overwhelming it was kind of a world-changing thought really ambitious and really cool thing really cool discussions were coming from it and there was little workshops and break off groups and and things but how this kind of plugged in with the association was just over lunch. I'm just sitting out on the lawn. Uh, we're having sandwiches and salads and, you know, getting to meet people more. And Lee comes over and checks in with me and says, how's it going? And I said, great. It's just what I said there, a little overwhelming. This is big. And my kind of immediate need now that could fit in with this, I'm just not sure if this is ready um, as we are, because we're ready to move on this on coming up with a learning management system in our mind at that point was just how do we get our ski lift technician trainings off a of PowerPoint onto kind of a standardized thing, some sort of a learning management system when we were trying to crack that nut. And we had a partner in that already with the National Skiers Association who was developing their lift maintenance resource guide to be the, the source of information uh, across the country on how you know we maintain ski lifts. And Lee's eyebrow kind of perked. Uh, you could tell he's thinking about it a little bit. And then we had to go back to the workshop and complete, you know, the work that needed to be done. And then he calls me uh, not too long after and said that idea had stuck with him and let's talk about it. And we put together a committee uh, and we kind of went from there and it's now turned into this really cool thing that we can talk about a lot. But I want to back up 
to what you had said there of how you're an instructional uh, designer for, for learning experiences. Okay. That's an interesting job. It's not a job that you would see um, if you weren't in the space already uh, that you would even know it exists, right? Of course, somebody's got to come up with all these things at universities, but yeah. Um, was that even on your radar when you were like, what do I want to do? No, not really. Um, and I've been in education for a while, but it was kind of like um, administration. I, I would handle contracts and I would um, uh, get new teachers caught up with, you know, this was I to back up 10, 15 years ago. There was no such thing as an instructional designer as it exists now. Like back then, an instructional designer like just did reviews of content to make sure that, yeah, this this um, textbook that you're using is still up to date and all this all this uh, these learning objectives still check out for what we're trying to teach you. But it didn't really have anything to do with online teaching until online teaching really started taking off. Like I want to say 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. Um, it was around, but it's just it's it's more and more accessible. And I mean, even now in the time of COVID, I've never had uh, better job security. <laughs> yeah. Every everything is online these days. But no, I like I was saying, I was just doing admin stuff, um, and more teachers were asking for support in uh, what's the best way to do this online, or what's the best way to make a video out of this PowerPoint deck. So I just I found myself doing that more and more. I got a master's degree specifically so that I could teach online because it looks so cool. I was helping everybody else teach online, but where I was working at the time, they wanted a master's degree. So I did that and I started building my own classes. And that's when I really started thinking about like, how, how can I push the media? Like, how can I, how can I get people to want to take the class to want to do their homework? And I stumbled into uh, what's called gamification. That's kind of a, a big buzzword or has been for the last five years. I wanted to gamify everything. I'm a gamer too. I play uh, video games with my kid. And so that kind of engagement is something that I really wanted to tap into. And, and I still really like to tap into with everything I do um, or, or everything I build for OSU. So there's a, a wide spectrum of instructional designers. Uh, like I was saying, there are instructional designers who still exist in the classic sense where they're they're checking textbooks and they're um, checking learning objectives and they're writing syllabi. Um, I am m much more on the design side where I'm looking for things that really grab attention or a video that's really cool that helps to explain a a concept or, you know, the stuff that we've done in ski in, in the ski lift uh, program where there's um, some augmented reality thrown in. There's there's 3D things that you can manipulate on your screen and everything like you can access it with your phone. So stuff like that excites me about the job. But this thing did not, like I said, didn't exist 10 years ago. I just kind of stumbled into it. And I'm glad I did because it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is really cool. You just made me think of something that I must have like psychologically blocked out of my online learning experience from 15, 20 years ago now, I guess, in a math class that I took. Um, and it was horrible. It was just oh, man. horrible. I, <laughs> I, I, I spent so much time at the lab like just trying to get supplemental, like how do I make this online, whatever PowerPoint, multiple point question thing 
work for me that it was like i was taking two classes basically on just my own time to figure it out it sucked yeah that's one of my um uh driving forces or or an adage that i use all the time is that a student shouldn't have to learn the platform or the app at the same time that they're learning the content because you you nailed it you're it's like you're taking two classes one to figure out just how to take the class and then the class itself um, which is a lot of cognitive load to expect out of somebody who's there just to learn the content. But yeah, I remember yeah. taking distance, distance learning classes and I'm going to date myself. I'm 40 now, but this is like in, uh, 2002, 2003. And they, they, uh, mailed me a VHS tape that I had to watch and then like fill out a form and fill out a test. And then I mail the VHS back to them is it was ridiculous. We've come a long way in yeah. 20 years. Well, I, I didn't even remember it's called distance learning, but it was. It was definitely that. So, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah. Un- you're unpacking something I've obviously tried to bury deep down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, it can be stayed buried. It's it was a pretty dark. It, those were dark days. Yeah. For it. <laughs> Education. Well, OK, so you didn't know this was going to be a thing. You got into admin side in education. Back up. Bottom of your resume. What was your first job? My first, my first ever job. Yeah. First paycheck. Uh, Oh man. I was, uh, I dropped out of high school (laughs) and I got a job as a groundskeeper, uh, working for AFES. I actually grew up in Germany. Uh, my dad was in the army and this, so this was in Heidelberg, Germany. Um, and I just wasn't having it with school. So I dropped out and got my G G, uh, GED right away and just got a job working cleaning up the parking lot of the local px um what's px the uh the post exchange it's like the store where all the uh you you have to be in the military to shop there basically Uh, okay quite a stretch then so how then (laughs) connect that dot to when you got into education like Um, how, how did that on your resume how did you get there so I uh, left home shortly thereafter. <laughs> uh, I did a lot of uh, odd jobs, um, uh, bartending, playing in bands, etc., and decided to go back to Heidelberg after a, a few years. And my dad had since retired uh, from the army and had got a job at the local education center. And he knew a guy who knew a guy and, uh, they needed somebody who was just like bottom rung admin person, like maintain these files, answer some emails, answer the phone. If it rings once a week, that kind of thing at this like tiny remote outpost. And so I did that for two or three years. Um, in between when it really started clicking for me, they asked for, uh, volunteers to be deployed as a civilian to Kosovo. Uh, and the Kosovo thing was happening at the time. Uh, and I went out there and I, I started, um, not only doing the admin work, but talking to other deployed people, soldiers and civilian service members about, you know, while you're out here, you could either sit in your room and play Xbox, or you could, you know, get into college. We've got college classes here on site. And so I was doing like college counseling and talking to people about that. And I, um, that was really empowering to me just to get people. And I didn't have a degree at the time. I was, I was like, look at me. I don't have a degree, but I'm sitting here. I've got the time. I'm in the middle of nowhere in Kosovo. It's snowing. Let's take some college classes. 
and convince people to do that. So I did that for about 10 years for a few different colleges. And in that time, I went to um, Kuwait and Iraq and Afghanistan um, and Egypt and Saudi Arabia and just went to all these different um, deployed locations and war zones and talked people into going to college while they were there. Uh, it was, um, I loved my job. It was unsustainable personally. I mean, not only cause it was, you know, in combat zones, but also cause it was just lonely. <laughs> I was yeah. just traveling, traveling around. And I always said like, if I, if I could have this job, but just live in the real world or, you know, live in Germany or live in the States, I would love it. Um, and eventually that came to pass and I met my wife and moved to California and got a job doing kind of the same thing at the uh, University of California, Irvine. And from there, I transferred to OSU, and and here we are. Dude, I had no idea. That is <laughs> crazy. Do you speak Arabic at all? Uh, no, not at all. I speak German because uh, my mom's German, yeah. but I know like uh, Inshallah is the only Arabic that I know. It means, oh, what is it? Oh, if Allah wills it. Where you're like, I don't know, inshallah. Yeah. Um, but no, no Arab. They had Arabic classes. I just never got into them because everybody wanted to take them. And it was my job to get people into class. So I couldn't take somebody else's spot in that, <laughs> in well, that yeah, same yeah. Arabic class. But yeah, no, the thought had crossed my mind, but never got into it. Um, I have a crazier story about how I met my wife. Well, sort of crazier. It's along the same lines. Yeah. I was living in Afghanistan at the time. And, uh, I decided that I wanted to, I, every six months I would get like two or three weeks off so I could go back to the real world and, you know, go to Germany and chill out for a few weeks. And I decided with my time to, um, volunteer with Habitat for Humanity. And they had this global village program where it would send you places all over the world and you just build a house for two weeks. Uh, and I got put on a team that went to Bali and my wife was on the same team. She came out from California. We met while building a house in the jungle in Bali, um, for two weeks. And after, like at the end of that two weeks, we just knew. And so I put in my notice. I still had six months to do in Iraq. And after that six months, I moved out to California and got married. And that's how I got to California. <laughs> that's we, we love telling that story. Yeah. That's an awesome story. Wow, man. Very cool. Uh, there's so many things I'm picking apart here from, I don't know. I was like, try to draw Pull the thread, pull a string of connection between ski areas. Oh, it's a hell of a thread. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the, the seven, six degrees of separation, whatever that is. At this retreat, when at this retreat we were talking about, uh, there was a gentleman there who runs his nonprofit. And he's a former, former uh, army soldier uh, called, called Adventure Not War, um, who mm. had spent a lot of time serving in the military uh, in a lot of those countries you just talked about. And he came back and, and his memories and a lot of his um, his peers' memories, they kind of wanted to override uh, some of the bad memories going on from from their service and go back to those places and ski. Uh, and so he's called, his organization is called The Venture Not War, Stacy. Uh, and he, he Stacy Bear, yeah, yeah Stacy right. Bear. And he was at that retreat and he's a super cool guy and has yeah. gone back. He's taken like some first descents um, in Afghanistan mountains and things like that. That wow, and take, taking skiers back, and they've they've had a race. Um, really cool thing. Uh, so I don't know, you just that little connection there. Of you've been to those countries, and I met someone else who's kind of in this this outdoor rec space in that also. 
uh, do yeah. really cool things. Yeah. Super nice guy. He's intimidating. He's a big dude. Big dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like, remember seeing him there. Yeah. But and like Teddy Bearish too. Like, I don't know. I, I've, I've kept uh, in touch with him. Like, yeah, he's, he's a really cool guy. He's cool to speak with. For sure. Okay. So aside from that, the administrative and all that other education work that you've done, you're also a bit of an artist. When lift mechanics sign up for this class and get in and look at what this uh, instructional design that you've created looks like, um, you've just taken a picture of a ski lift or looked at it with your eyeballs and drawn it and turned it into part of this program. So tell me some of this artistic background that you have that you've been able to weave into this. Yeah, that that's another thing I just kind of stumbled into. I mean, I've always been um, into drawing and into art. Um, I never thought that I would get paid to do it, <laughs> you know, to doodle. But yeah, it's it's something that has kind of taken off. And I think it just started on a lark when I was um, discussing with Lee and Meredith back before I was on their team um, about, you know, just some logos or maybe... Um, some drawings to set them apart and i did a doodle of um like a like a an ice pick or an ice axe or something like that and did another one of um uh, a binding a snowboard binding and they were like wow these are really cool make a few more of these we'll see what we maybe use these in a in a pitch deck or or use it in a pdf um, as marketing material so i just started drawing these things more and more and um that it found its way into classes. So we use these, these drawings um, and they're like simple line drawings. They, they kind of look like um, maybe blueprints without the hash marks, without too many hash marks. Um, but I really like the look of um, just like clean, simple line drawings. And I started um, looking at the angles on the ski lifts and thinking about um you know, the towers and uh, the carriers and, and just drawing those. And they, yeah, like you said, they, it found its way into the class um, and it's gotten a cool response. And, and it's it, the way that it's drawn, you can use certain um, what's called authoring tools. It's basically like um, e-learning uh, production suites. It's like Adobe suites for e-learning. Basically, if, if you, uh, draw it in a way that has a bunch of different layers on it, you can make it interactive. Like you can move your mouse over it and it highlights a piece of that drawing. So it's a cool way to, to make technical drawings or to, I, I like to think of it as breaking down technical drawings in ways that make it interactive in ways that the student can play with it. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's really um, become kind of a signature of this program. Um, not so much the other programs we run because they're kind of like conceptual, like business and leadership. There's not a whole lot to draw except like, I don't know, stuffy business people. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but with technical stuff, if you're if you're uh, especially like the ski lifts, if if it's visual based, a lot of it's visual based, um, it's it's cool to have not just photos that everybody has or stock photos of us, of a, of a Doppelmayr. Um, you can draw it, make it interactive. And that's the, that's the kind of thing that I love doing most in my job is, is taking things like just a, a flat photo and figuring out surprising things to do with it. Yeah. You're, you're being too humble about what it is, man. It is. <laughs> no, it is cool. And you're telling me that you 
had you ever been paid to do anything artistic like that before or you were just like doodling and like it just fell into place here you've never had like an art gallery showing you've like you're hiding something in your past dude no not at the time it's it's funny you mention it i've been doing uh, on vashon here i've been doing um a lot of painting around the island and put up an installation at a show but that's only happened in the last year like i don't dude you're blowing my mind like (laughs) it is so cool like again when you when when people sign up for this class and you see that like you take you've taken a shiv assembly um just like a pretty simple thing and broken it down to every distinct part and then like 3d exploded it and you can surf 360 degrees around it it's it's cool stuff man yeah. and just and just the way you've taken the ski lift like you said you just kind of had basic understandings of it and really made it interactive and really really cool it's a really cool thing uh to see and so i'm a little uh mind blown that that's like your professional background uh in art yeah that's it isn't it wasn't there that's it and then it's just like fell into place for you in in the rest of this design it's super cool yeah it's a lot of fun to do uh so i want to back up a little bit to since you got us thinking about distance learning and what you know what we used to do for these types of trainings and i can speak a little bit about how the association has gone through training and how ski areas go through training of course you're like think of a ski area Starting up in the fall, it's like you're starting a new company every year. And then if you go into summer operations, it's like you're starting a new company twice a year <laughs> where you're completely staffing up, you're completely training your mm-hmm. new people, doing new things. And I've got quite a bit of experience doing that and bringing in a whole crew of, of, of whatever it is and going through two days, a few days of this is what this job's going to take. This is what your life's going to look like for the next six months. So I'm no stranger there and I'm no stranger and many, many other people that work at the region's ski areas and are involved in our association's annual spring conference. Uh, there's a lot of people that come together and train and it's a lot of PowerPoints and there's a lot of hour, hour and a half long sessions of talking about best practices, talking about lots of great things. And it is all PowerPoint based. And some, depending on your style, can be really good PowerPoints and some can be death mm-hmm, by PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually I was about to ask if that's a thing outside of the military, because they, they death by PowerPoint is a uh, is very prevalent in, you know, yeah. briefings, everything that they do. <laughs> but it's, yeah, a, it's, it's, a, a, thing it's a thing everywhere, everywhere I guess. Um, I've definitely probably perpetrated death by PowerPoint a little bit because it you know, it serves its point. And so, some of mine have been worse than we others. And others, you know, others I've been pretty proud of uh, when you can really take some time on them and make them engaging and not use it as a crutch. Yeah, but that's kind of where, where we're at, at, at least of how we've been delivering workforce education. Um, it's a lot of classroom time and nothing like this online thing is has been around uh, on a grand scale like this is. So is there is there anything else you want to add there of what we're all used to? And then we can talk about um, really this next generation of what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, when you were talking earlier about um, you had the partnership of the National Ski Area Association who developed a resource guide. And I remember the first time I got my hands on that resource guide, uh, it was it was just like a ream of paper in uh, a three ring binder and talk about feeling overwhelmed. I'm like, how how am I going to even approach this. Um, I think there was two or three pictures in 200 or 250 pages or something like that. (laughs) No, it was straight up content. It hadn't got a, it hadn't got a graphic artist at all. It was just straight up material in, in developing it. No, since then it's gone to like, you know, the graphic artist has got a hold of it and it's, it's kind of like, it looks nice now. It's nice. 
but at the time it was just yeah just 200 pages <laughs> and i remember i was on the plane um to to bend uh from from california lee just called me up and said hey can you get out to bend for two or three days uh this coming friday just shoot some video see what you think here's this resource guy and it was i remember it was my birthday and when i flew up for my birthday uh, on a evening flight and i'm on the plane with this binder open in front of me just like highlighting stuff and i realize that i'm just <laughs> highlighting everything because i don't even like <laughs> i didn't even know where to start so i'm just highlighting entire pages so I mean, back to the the entire purpose of an instructional designer is taking something that like that and turning it into uh, a program or a, a course, an online experience that people would want to go through as opposed to uh, sitting them down with a three ring binder or a two two hour PowerPoint. Um, yeah, that that's what came to mind uh, in terms of, you know, things that we're doing now and or, or, or things that we've done in the past versus what we're trying to do uh, with this OSU program. So what are we trying to do? What are you trying to do? The, the the real crux or the real reason that this is being done is not only you mentioned the turnover, like you, you've got a new crew every season. Well, um, kind of just a piece of it. Turnover is a piece of it. Sure. Yeah. But but a lot of a bigger piece of it and, you, you know, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you know, better than I do is there's there's going to be an, an information gap real soon because the people who are experts in these things are retiring. So this information needs to go somewhere. It needs to be passed on for for things to run smoothly. And I mean, there there's always going to be mechanically inclined people, but not necessarily people who know specific lifts or specific skills or uh, specific tactile things that you need to know, like the, the smell of an engine room or um, the feel of a shimmy uh, on the, on the carrier while you're going up because you're doing a morning check or something like these are the types of things that, that are not going to be in a, in a textbook. So we're trying to grab those things for the younger generation before, um, uh, the experts retire and also online education in general is going to be more accessible across the whole country, as opposed to, you know, if you live in Colorado, you can go to a specific school and they have a, a, a lift program that you can take if you're in the area. Um, if you're not and you're outdoorsy and you're like, this sounds like a great idea, I could get a job on a lift and there's not one in your area, then having something online is, is a great go to. Are textbooks dead? Can we Are, say textbooks that? Are they dying? Um, I I know someone who thinks so. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm. Um, I, I think I'd get in trouble with some publishers if I said that they were. I think that they're going to go digital. My boss loves to talk about the idea that online classes are the new textbooks um, because they're they're like a, a collection of a collection of facts and knowledge that everyone agrees is the standard. A textbook used to be that. Um, and now you can put everything in a digital format and get it online. And that can be with with the same amount of weight, be the standards and the facts that everyone agrees on. 
uh, online. What I love about it is it's so easy to have just on your phone. If that's the way you want to look at it, you can do it on a screen or whatever. But and so many Skiria staff members have a commute to get to work, right? They don't. I mean, some there's some live on the mountain um, or nearby, but it's usually a commute. And if you're not the one driving, that's so easy to pull that out and say, oh, I'm just going to knock this lesson out here on my half hour ride to work um, yeah. or ride home or, or, or whatever. I, I love that that piece of it. A big worry I had when we, when we talk about learning management systems, which have been around for a while, that are a step above the, uh, the distance learning VHS that you were talking about, right? Yeah, but I, 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 some I, of them. Some of them. <laughs> <laughs> a concern in putting all this stuff online um, and if it's just a video, there's like a, just a YouTube video that you go through or whatever, is how you test um, retention, how the student, you know, how do you know that they didn't just click through it and just like fast forward through everything? Um, yeah. And, and not in a way that's like, gotcha, you're not putting in the time and like not, not a weird like power dynamic thing. But, you know, if people are engaged and, and choosing this as a career path and also know that time is a commodity and it's, you know, people got to structure their workflows, right? Um, so scoring formatting is one of those ways that, that ensure there's retention, ensure there's time committed to looking at it, processing, applying what you're learning. Can you talk to me how, how something like that has been built into this? Yeah, we, we had a lot of, um, a lot of conversations about the best way to do, uh, what you're describing. We, we wanted to make sure that it closely followed both the uh, the 200 page document that I got from uh, uh, those NSAA drafts, and we we got some outside consulting. Uh, there's a college in um, Canada called Selkirk that uh, has just an amazing, amazing textbook. It's great um, on on everything ski lift related. Um, it's extremely thorough. So we took that content, put it together, and we actually got um, uh, an individual from the College of Engineering to to review the content and come up with the the best possible questions to ask if you were going to review this, or, or rather, if you were going to take this and you wanted to review the student on what they knew um, and what they retained from the information. So this individual is Jeff Raynack uh, at, at OSU Cascades, went through the entire entire program and wrote up really detailed and really targeted uh, assessment questions. So that's one level of it. And the second one, the conversations that we had would often go back to, well, since this is an online class and since these are um, detailed structures and and mechanical equipment, how are we going to make sure that this all makes sense in the field? And like you say, they're not, they're not just Googling the answers to the questions. And so we we came up with a way to um, have the students engage their supervisors. So the supervisor had a checklist that they say, okay, you, you just work through module two. Here are the main points of module two. Now demonstrate that you know what this means. Um, if it's a, uh, if you can identify the parts of, you know, a, a shiv assembly or describe how um, a detachable chair um, comes in and out of the terminal. So, in in a very um, in a very real way, these are are hands on tests or, or rather hands on checks uh, with um, supervisors or colleagues to make sure that yeah the person who went through this training not only understands the concepts and and um, can identify parts in a picture, 
but they really know what they're doing inside the physical location that we're trying to teach them about. So let's talk directly about it, about the ski lift technician training uh, program okay. that we've put together. And in that light of the video and those other things that are built into this too, beyond your really artful, cool drawings. Yeah, the 3D video, the... The 3D goggle box <laughs> when you guys pitch this. <laughs> we like now we slipped our phones into this goggle box and we're walking around uh, a lift terminal at Mount Bachelor. And that's what you're talking about when Lee wanted you to fly up and like go to Bachelor. We we yes, we talked yeah. with those guys at Bachelor and said, Hey, do you mind touring this guy around with his camera? <laughs> yep. Yeah, and uh, Tom Lomax at Bachelor, uh now the former director of Ops there, walked me around and met with a couple lifties and took me up uh the first time i was ever in a in a lift terminal it was pretty exciting for me um and just a few a few weeks before i had gotten the camera to make those that that 360 video um so just to describe it it's um it's a small camera it's about the size of a of a, a wallet i guess and you put it somewhere in a room and it takes uh, it has lenses on both sides of it. So imagine just your phone. It has lenses on both sides of it, but in a little bubble. And that bubble allows it to take a 360 degree photo of an entire space or even a video of the entire space. Um, and I'm I'm always kind of geeky and, you know, the latest camera or, or animation or different ways that I can make different media. So found a way to stitch it. Um, it's called stitching it when you make the 360 uh, uh, picture in a way that you can look at it in 360 degrees. These things are everywhere now, by the way. I remember when Facebook started doing this like four or five years ago, making things 360. But now you, it's really easy to do. Um, and just making that into a tour where things that you can click on and things that you can um, interact with, or, you know, if you, you hover your mouse or you hover your, your phone reticle over a piece of the lift, uh, it'll pop up and say, do you want to watch a video about this, this, you know, um, prime mover or evacuation drive or something? Uh, so I made one of those <laughs> and I, oh, I was going to say, like three or four weeks before that, I decided that I wanted one of these cameras that I was talking about with the bubbles. And I talked to my boss about it and she said, well, what are you going to use it for? And I said, I, don't, I have no idea, but I'll know it when I see it. And the first thing that I used it for that actually made any sense was inside that that Doppelmayr drive. Um, since then, I've used it in, you know, um, uh, tours and, and things of that nature. But uh, yeah, uh, I think that was one of the main selling points when we when we brought the training to uh, to your committee and said, look how cool this could be. That 360 video where you can just hold your phone up to your eyes and just look around. Yeah. Uh, look around the lift terminal. That was it's awesome. We were pretty proud of ourselves. Yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> I, I love that you can do it both ways. You can either just look it out on your computer screen or on your phone without turning on the the, the 3D component of it right but you can spend like six bucks on a little google cardboard box that's made for this yeah. or you can spend 200 bucks on the oculus whatever the like rift the, yeah. rift, the real the real yeah. one right but if you put it in the phone thing in the little google box there's this little dot in the center of the screen and as you're walking around it, it does it sands the smell you're in a lift mm -hmm. terminal you look up and see the yeah. scene you look down and see the floor grading you look left and right and all that 
And as your eye goes across, say, the gearbox, a little play button, a little triangle pops up there. And if you hover that little dot in front of your eyes and just look at it, up pops uh, Alicia Smith at Mount Bachelor, mm-hmm. uh, one of the amazing lift techs there, telling you all about it. It's it's yeah. it's super cool. It's super super cool. It's awesome. And I mean, it's talking speaking of retention, that's the kind of thing where you can either see a picture of it and read the caption and say, "Okay, that's the gearbox." But if you've seen this before, if you are walking around and looking around and your your head is in motion, you're remembering these things in a different way than if you were just sit down with a textbook. So, it just it 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 really helps with the experience and and understanding what you're looking at and the understanding of the components in a different way than if you're just reading it in a textbook. Well, I'm looking at our list here of uh, of stuff that we want to talk about. What are we missing? Um, I'm curious. I don't know if you want to talk about yourself, but I know that you're a skier, but I don't know what level of skier you are. And is that how you got into the lift business? <laughs> I just wanted to be a ski bomb during the Olympics in 2002. So it's from Idaho and I had family in the Salt Lake area and you know, so I'd gone there my whole life in, in and out of Park City and Heber Valley and, and around there. And uh, I'm on my college path to either be a software engineer, um, which I thought I wanted to do, and then just started doing it. And I was like, no. And, yeah. <laughs> but I've taken a couple of these uh, sociology classes, which I really liked. And then the Olympics are coming up and I was like, I'm taking a year off and I'm just going to go be a ski bum and, and be in Park City. So I did that. And met a lot of amazing people from all over the world, um, everywhere. I mean, of course, with the Olympics, right? So just get kind of plugged into the ski industry there and really had to kind of make myself go back to school because I just wanted to keep doing that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I did go back to school and knew, okay, so here's all these different cultures I've just come into into contact with. And I'm going to study sociology. And I kept working at, at ski areas, fluctuating full-time, part-time uh, as I finished my degree there. And then I started being a social worker a little bit. And the ski area called me and said, hey, we just lost a supervisor for this winter. Come on back. And I said, okay. <laughs> but I went yeah. back with the, with the goal, like saying, okay, I'm not just going to only go be a lift operations supervisor. I mean, it's an amazing job. I had, I had so much fun and I don't, I don't mean to say only like <laughs> knock people that are, yeah. that are choosing that because honestly it's so much fun, but I said it with a goal. Like, okay, if I'm going to go, I'm going to leave social work and go back into the ski industry. I'm doing it intentionally. I'm going to be a manager in this industry. Um, yeah. and then see where that takes me. And so I, I'd really set that goal that I'm from day one to be in the supervisor position. I'm looking for lift manager jobs anywhere in the country. And uh, I did that for two years, all the while doing a summer job at that point, uh, guiding in Alaska, ended up getting my captain's license, uh, a lot of whale watch guiding, a lot of glaciers and hiking, and then became a charter fishing captain. Wow. Um, what? So did a dual seasonality <laughs> there, a lot of ski resorting in the winter and a lot of 
uh, hanging out in Alaska and in the Puget Sound, even in the summer times. Wow, that's awesome. But it was, I mean, it was intentional that, okay, I need to be a manager doing this. And I'm glad that I had set that goal because um, it didn't tie me down into like the one specific thing. And I had to check myself on that sometimes as opportunities would come my way. I'd be like, well, this wasn't really what I was going for, but it fits in that initial goal of yeah. wanting to, you know, be a leader in in this industry. And so when those opportunities have come my way, I've definitely had to go back and say, is this my initial goal? Yes. Okay. Success. I can do this, yeah. even though it wasn't really my intent. Yeah. All right. I guess does that answer the question? Yeah, for sure. Except, um, how good of a skier are you? Oh, the skier. How good of a skier are you? So I think when you've been in the industry a lot, that's a weird question. Um, when how I th- so? When what I do you think, mean? When I think of your, how good of a skier are you? Um, you think of the ski rental form. If you're renting skis and there's like oh, yeah. type one, <laughs> yeah. type two, or type three, that's yeah. what I think a lot of people think. Like what? How type? You know, what type are you there? Uh, so if I was to rent skis, I would check the number three there. Well, what? Okay, mate. How about slopes, though? Are uh, I, you a double black diamond? Yeah, I, I can ski about everything. Now that I'm old, I don't. I mean, not old, yeah. but just forty. I can tell you. So, growing up in Idaho and really close to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, um, Grand Targhee and Jackson Hole, I just I love both of those mountains a lot. And a real famous uh, part of, of Jackson Hole is Corbett's Coulier at the top of the tram there. Um, and I have skied down the Coulier there uh, when I was young and when the cornice was not that big uh, on big snow years, you can see. So it must have been earlier in the season doing that um, when you, you kind of drop in and you got to you got to miss the thing on your left and then miss the thing on your right. And then it opens up and you're out of there. But this new comp that they have going at Jackson Hole, um, the king and queen of Corbett's um, three years ago, four years ago now, maybe uh, I went back home and I went to Jackson and I went up there and I was like, I've skied this before. I'm going to ski it again. And I go up to the top of it and I hang my tips over the edge and I'm looking and I just backed straight back up and said, oh, no, nope, not doing that anymore. So when I was younger, I did some, <laughs> some, some stuff that um, is pretty fun and pretty challenging, but I'm kind of saving my back and my knees and my heart. For sure. Yeah, that's point. what I was going to say. My, <laughs> the knees really keep me off the moguls these days. Yeah, but uh, I do like what I miss about... Oh, great. And I can't, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I guess I, I'm the one controls publishing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Bachelor's not as steep. And so I skied a lot of time, especially since I worked there and I still live in Bend, right? And Bachelor's not known for, for its steeps, right? It's known for not mm-hmm. a lot of other really, really great things. Um, but from both some Wasatch skiing and then growing up at the Tetons, it's just not as steep as that. And it's probably made me a little softer. So when I go to those places too, I'm not as practiced and skilled as doing that stuff. Yeah. And so I'll look for it. Yeah. I'll definitely like, oh, that's steep. And I love oh, two years ago, such a great day at Alta. Um, but it's definitely noticeably steeper and you got to turn your game up a little bit. And yeah. Yeah. But it, that's, it's funny that you mentioned that hanging the your skis over the edge and just backing up. Did you have uh, uh, your kiddo? At that time, no, no, you like, no, it was even before <laughs> it was that. Even before that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm puckered, man. I'm not, I'm not You're doing like, that again. My back and my knees. Yeah, and I'm not talking. I've never like hucked the corners, just dropping over edges of things like that. I think is is still really fun. Um, yeah, but not when it's like 25 feet. You got to miss that That's rock. Sketchy. <laughs> like, yeah. I, you're, you're, I think I would check the number two of the rental form. So I, I, I grew up skiing in 
Southern Germany, um, in, in Austria, we used to go every Christmas, go skiing, but it was like, uh, these ski weeks. It's not like where I lived, you walk out and go skiing or, you know, take a short ride and go skiing. It was like a production Mm -hmm. four or five hour drive once a year. Mm Mm-hmm. So, uh, skied a lot in Austria, but it was a a lot of like flat rolling, but long, pretty easy runs. Um, I can't imagine, you know, uh, uh, dropping in between cornices. I've seen those videos, you know, (laughs) my favorite nowadays, my favorite type of skiing is, is just tree skiing. Um, I love these Northwest trees. When I moved, um, out of the Wasatch and to the Northwest, so my experience in, in both Wasatch and the end of the Tetons, um, trees can be tight. They can be really tight, especially if you're in an Aspen area um, where it's not just these big uh, coniferous trees, right? They can be yeah. really tight. And it's it's learning in that environment, I think, made me uh, have a good twitch, like turn yeah. quick. You got to turn quick if you're going through the trees like that. Um, and then I, I come to the Northwest and I'm just seeing these, these big hemlocks, these big spruces, they're spaced out a little bit more in some areas. And I, I had that, that Twitch kind of memory so I could go pretty at a pretty good clip through the trees. Um, but it was, they're just wide open comparatively. Yeah. And I love that. And I still love that about the, the trees in the Northwest. There are just some places that the tree runs are long and incredible and, maybe often get overlooked when you when you see those helicopter you know, those heli skiing clips and and all that sort of stuff uh some of these northwest tree tree runs are so phenomenal that's awesome sounds very very peaceful it's like if you're dropping in something super steep or dropping out of a helicopter you've got some like heavy metal on and then you just switch it over to some smooth jazz and go through the trees for a little while. Yeah. could. Although I yeah. keep the metal on too. I can keep some of the metal on the time also. Fair. <laughs> totally fair. Because it's the adrenaline. I, maybe it's, it's kind of similar to when you got to pick a line. I mean, you're, one kind of don't look at the tree. It's even hard to like, I'm not giving a lesson in, in tree skiing, right? Because once, once you do it, it's what you like, what you just go do it. You're not like really thinking about it. You're just skiing. Mm-hmm. But don't if you don't want to hit the tree don't look at the tree look at the place that you want to go in between the trees uh, okay right yeah. and in the northwest depending on your snow cycles like stay away from the trees stay away from the tree wells that can be a yeah. pretty dangerous thing so have a buddy and but look at the place you want to go don't look at the place that you you don't want to go because sometimes it just tracked your beams you right into it right and yeah. i liken that to driving boats through glacial fjords in alaska through ice when there's ice flows coming out, the little bergy bits in the water, um, yeah, it's yeah. kind of the same. You're like picking your run, and you got to look way up, up for up the fjord too to know. But those things are moving too. You know, the trees are going to be static. Yeah, those, they're moving too. Those are moving around, and there's they're under the water in places that you can't see, and that takes a lot of looking ahead to. Okay, this next 200 yards, the ice looks clear if I go left here, but way up there, it's super thick, and so did I just take 200 yards of of easy driving and now i just locked myself in to all this ice and got in a situation so it, it it's kind of similar of picking your line there um yeah that's, <laughs> you heard it here folks yeah, you heard it here go, go drive the ice and then you can ski that's gonna be the trees. that should be our next technical training is <laughs> jordan's uh, uh a tree skiing well i'm excited about this this uh training that you've put together in this partnership with the association with Oregon state and now this, uh, outdoor recreation economy, um, center for the outdoor recreation economy. 
It's it's yeah. all becoming legitimized now, and it's it's gonna it, it's just growing, like we said, it's just growing. But this partnership is really cool, and I'm excited now. So here we are, 2021, and in June, registration is open now. But in June, this training is going to kick off. We put 20 pilot students through it last year as you were developing it. Yep, as you were. You know, coming to visit Mount Bachelor, have other resorts on the list. We had this whole production schedule lined out and then COVID shut it all down, right? So so we got to pick those pieces back up. I think we're going to get plugged in with a lot of these Washington ski areas. Some of the ski areas on Mount Hood, really anybody in the region is welcome to to contribute to this because now we're in it. We we passed the pilot, those 20 students. um, It's out in the wild now. We're going to get people enrolled. So any, any lift mechanic or any lift operator or any... Anybody that has that kind of a mindset and drive to be mechanically uh, inclined and want to climb lift towers in the middle of of rain (laughs) or snow or ice storm. uh, Superheroes, I tell you what. It's pretty harrowing. But now there's this opportunity to really streamline the language that's used in that profession, um, the terminology, the best practices, the safety. I mean, every component of this training, every module of how many modules we got. Well, if you put it all, it depends what you think of a module is, but it's basically a seven to eight week course. And I think there's like 25, 26 modules, individual modules. Yeah. And it could probably be more. In fact, uh, we're going through the iterations right now and the, the after pilot review. And I want to, you know, shout out to those, um, pilot students who went through the first one, gave us excellent feedback and, um, we're just constantly making improvements. I'm looking for more things to draw every time I look at it. And, uh, uh, yeah, uh, 20, 26 modules. It was it was uh, overwhelming when I got that book, and uh, it's a little overwhelming when I think of all the work that went into it. But I, it's a, a great team that we've got um, at the center, and like you said, it's it's getting bigger. It's just gonna uh, grow this year, and we're hoping to have more levels of this lift technician training, like a level two and a level three, and um, continue partnering. It's gonna be cool. Well, we're having great talks about how this platform that you've developed can have other implications it's not just ski lift technicians right we can do this in lots of other areas of resort operations and and there's interest i think uh as these discussions come along of oh how else could we can use this that's really cool let's use it over here too um yep those are great discussions part of that um is kind of an elective if you if you do sign up for these lift technician modules there is the foundations of the outdoor recreation economy uh, 101 session that's yep. not ski lift it's not ski area pacific it, it, it's outdoor recreation it's it's what these types of jobs mean in the economy at large and it's like a six hour work at your own pace course yeah. uh, that's part of this also as an elective and I, I think that's really important too i think that's really important to to broaden your lens broaden the way you're looking at things not just looking at the bullwheel um and, and making a connection between the work that you do on the lift has implications not only other areas of the ski resort that you might not necessarily think about but other areas in your community other areas in your state and how the whole thing is is just woven together in the outdoor economy for sure yeah and you say 
a six hour work at your own pace. It's, it's not like you're uh, sitting there for six hours and <laughs> going through it all at once, but you can, yeah. I, you know, people uh, in the, the ski tech, uh, ski lift tech program, they're going to be at it for 12 or, um, you know, 18 weeks. If they want to, we leave it open a little at the end, but they can, you know, take 45 minutes at a time and learn about the outdoor economy. It's just, I had no idea when I started with the center um, how just massive it is. It's just billion dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. And um, we tried to do kind of um, deep dives into things you wouldn't really think of, like the way that the outdoor economy um, is, is broken down economically. Like it's not only retail, but it's retail and tourism. And what does it mean if you're going out to, you know, you go out to Bachelor and you take your skis, which you rented in Portland, or maybe you bought your your ski suit in Portland. Like, where does this money actually flow to? This is just an example of the, the things that that we're trying to make you think about in terms of the entire outdoor recreation economy and um, other things, too, like, like some cool information, how the park system uh, came to be. Uh, what it looks like um, from an equity lens, like um, getting getting equal access to the outdoor spaces. So we touch on a lot of different things in that four one hundred one class. But yeah, at, at, like you said, you can jump into that as part of that ski tech program too. It's really cool. I'll encourage so anybody listen here. This is this is a new way, right? So we and we still will have our annual spring conference uh, when COVID allows us to get back together. We're really thinking that's going to be a thing in April of 2022. So we'll continue to have workforce education opportunities in the traditional sense at a conference like that. But we also have this now. So over the course of this summer, um, folks can sign up and, and take this over the whole summer. It'll drop a module right when they sign up. The first module becomes available, right? And then every two weeks, the next module will become available and they'll they'll kind of succession out like that and give you time to work at your own pace. It's really cool. I'm really excited about it. I'm really excited about next steps where this will be able to go both in ski areas, outside of ski areas, like you're talking to national parks and really the whole now advent of the Center for Outdoor Recreation Economy, OSU. It's really cool. I'm really excited about it. I'm really happy about uh, the work that you put into this, uh, the instructional design, the learner experience, all that. It looks really cool. Um, I'm really excited for people to see it and let this become kind of the future of technical training for ski lifts. Well, you know, props to you for that that fateful day on the grass in, in Bend <laughs> where you said, you know what we need. <laughs> um, so <laughs> it was your vision and, and Lee's vision and brought it all together. So it, it's a it's a heck of a team. And it was, you know, very much a team effort um, from the center perspective. And we just look forward to making more more accessible, more media friendly, more video, more interactivity, VR, like we're going to throw everything at it and it's just going to get cooler and cooler. I like it. Well, let's talk. Let's get you up to Suquamish, get you to White Pass, get you to, to Mount Hood. We'll get you in some of these other ski areas. And yeah, and, uh, yeah, we'll just keep moving forward. Absolutely. And when, when I get there, I'm going to check the number two, take, take my <laughs> rental up the hill. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Danny. We'll talk to you, you soon. Bye-bye. Follow that chair on out. Come on out to that red line. How y'all doing today? Good. How about you? Oh, it's living the dream, you know. It's another beautiful day in paradise. Here comes that chair, guys. Yeah. Enjoy. Ah. Chairlift thoughts. 
I'm just going to get ahead of this one before the texts and the emails and the phone calls start to come in. Talking with Danny there, on our little tangent, getting a little off topic, was the word coolyar. Did I say it right? I don't know. I think it's cool war. Cool, cool war. C-O-U-L-O-I-R. Yeah. What is that thing? Well, Wikipedia says, A couillard may be a seam, scar, or fissure, or a vertical crevasse in an otherwise solid mountain mass. Though often hemmed in by sheer cliff walls, couloirs may also be less well-defined, and often simply a line of broken talus or scree ascending the mountainside and bordered by trees or other natural features. Couloirs are especially significant in winter months when they may be filled in with snow or ice and become much more noticeable than in warmer months when most of the snow and ice may recede. These physical features make the use of couloirs popular for both mountaineering and skiing. That's your chairlift thought. Big thanks to Daniel Powers there for really filling us in on what it's like to design a training like this and also his life. That's it for this run. I want to give another shout out to Young Carts and Lee Rosevier for their excellent podcast jams. Make sure you're hitting that subscribe button if you haven't already so the next one pops up on your feed. Tell some friends about this podcast. Leave us some reviews. And remember, if you work at a ski area in the Northwest, this podcast is yours. What do you want to do with it? Email podcast at pnsaa.org. I'll see you next time on the mountain. I'm Coggy Foggles. <laughs>